Well, hello, and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Today we'll be delving into the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, that is, Romans chapter 5. I'm glad you could join us today, and I want to encourage you, if this is your first time joining us, at least in our study of Romans, that you would back up and cover the other episodes leading up to this one, chapters 1 through 4, so that you would have the groundwork that we are building on as we travel through the book of Romans. I want you to have a complete understanding. Because after all, our goal here is to truly grasp Scripture, to understand its historical context, the way it related to the people that heard it, and what God is saying to us today through His living Word. So I thank you for joining us. I'm glad you could be part of this study. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as I turn my heart to you, and your word. Lord, I ask that you would speak to each of us in this study. Father, that you would make your word known to us. And we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the grace that you have lavished on us in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have made us right with you, not through effort of our own, but through your love for us and the atoning work of Christ. And Father, as we study your word, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying, and a heart that is sensitive to the promptings of your spirit as we seek to follow you. Lord, lead us in this study today, we pray, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So picking up in chapter five, this is an ongoing discussion, so I'm not going to backtrack. If you would go back and listen to four, if you're unsure about where we are uh, in this whole process, Paul, again, is talking to two very different groups, those from a Jewish background, those from a, a Gentile background, and he has laid out an extensive argument already about the grace of Christ. And so now he's picking up in five, continuing on with that discussion. And talking about some of those uh, assurances for salvation that we find in our in our hope of salvation from the gospel. I mean, things that are made clear. So let's look at this. In chapter 5, he begins this way. He says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. So he's summing up what he's already been talking about previously, and that is we are made right in the sight of God, but we are made right in the sight of God by one thing, and that is by the grace of Jesus Christ. We've been made right in God's sight by faith, faith in that grace, faith in God. And that's why we have peace with God. It isn't our own doing. It's not an adherence to a law and the following of ritual that makes us in right standing with God. We appropriate that right standing by faith. And it is a gift. It is the grace of God that we are latching onto by faith. Now, as he goes on in verse two, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Wow. 
That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? We look forward confidently to sharing in God's glory. How could Paul be so bold as to make a statement like that? Because he understands that we are united with Christ. That we have the very indwelling of the presence of the Spirit of Christ in our lives. And he'll talk about that more in about three chapters. But it lays the groundwork for everything. It is because of faith we have that relationship, not because it's deserved. In fact, he said it is a place of undeserved privilege. We have this awesome relationship with God that we did not earn deserve, or do anything to accomplish. But we have it because God loves us. And so he offers forgiveness and restoration. The question becomes, do we respond? Or do we reject, turn away, and live or die, as the case may be, in our sin? Well, he goes on in verse three, he says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Okay, so he's covered a lot of ground there just in these few verses. We've covered five verses so far. And in that, he's talked about how we are, are made right in God's sight by faith as opposed to works, but it is by placing our faith with him that we have peace with God, that we have this undeserved privilege, that we can rejoice, not saying that we will not have problems and trials in life. In fact, just the opposite. He says we can rejoice too, or we can rejoice also when we run into problems and trials. Not that they're not going to be there and we won't experience them. And I know there's some out there that claim that if you follow Christ, everything's great. And God just wants to bless you all the time and you'll never have a hardship. Well, God does desire to bless your life. But sometimes those blessings look like problems and trials. Why? Because those become opportunities for us to stand in that faith, to strengthen our faith. And Paul says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. And now the explanation of why. For we know that they help us develop endurance. You know, wait, I, I don't remember endurance being a, you know, what? how does that fit in? We endure, we stand firm, as he says elsewhere, like oh, Galatians. We stand firm, we endure. Why? What's that get us? Verse four, and endurance develops strength of character. Okay. What is strength of character? Character is who you are when no one else sees who you are. Character is who you truly are at your core. Endurance develops strength of character. Character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. You want your hope of salvation, your confidence in the promise of God for salvation? to be strengthened, 
It's going to happen through you enduring problems and trials. It's just part of the nature of things. Paul talks elsewhere very eloquently and and beautifully when you really delve into it about what it is to be united with Christ in his suffering. In our humanity, we like smooth sailing. We like it easy. Uh, Some office company in recent years has had an ad campaign and on their commercials, they had a big red button and people were doing things the hard way. And then somebody would walk over and they'd hit this big button and it said easy on it. It was hitting the easy button. You know, just bypass everything, make it easy. There is no easy button in the Christian faith. There is no easy button in reality. Instead, there is running into problems and trials, but doing it knowing, knowing that those problems and trials will help us to grow, to develop a strength of character, to grow in our confident hope of salvation. Don't lament that there are hardships in life. Don't lament the problems and trials that you have faced or will face, or maybe are in the middle of right now, but instead understand them in a larger context. Understand that God is giving you opportunities to cling to him. He's giving you opportunities to endure, to grow, to strengthen, and take those opportunities. A phrase those that know me have heard me use. I, it's not original. I, I picked it up from from the Switch Youth Ministry of of uh, Life Church out of Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, they had a series on on James, and in it they talk about how you don't just go through things; you should grow through things. And as cheesy as that little phrase is, it still resonates with me. Because I see it over and over again in Scripture. As we face challenges, as we face hardships, trials, all of it, we are called not just to endure it, not just to, to muddle our way through or pray our way through or quote Scripture our way through. Not that any of those are bad things, but that we should grow through it, not just go through it. The goal is not to get to the other side the goal is to grow in Christ, whatever we're facing. So take encouragement from that. Now, as he gets to verse six, he says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. I love the way he phrases that. That is such a beautiful verse. When we were utterly helpless. What does he mean by utterly helpless? He means we had no help. We had no hope. There was absolutely nothing that could be done for us apart from God. Brings back echoes of Jesus talking to the disciples, and you you may recall that instance where um, there's been this episode where they're dealing with the wealthy versus the poor, and and Jesus talks about how it's easier for a, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and 
people love to try to explain that away. But what Jesus is saying there is the animal, a camel, um, it's, it's easier to take a camel and make it fit through the eye of a needle. And I don't care if it's a, a weaving needle or a sewing needle, but it's a whole lot smaller than a camel. And basically you're not getting a camel through that eye. He's saying it's easier for that to happen than it is for rich men to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples then respond to that by saying, if that's the case, then who can be saved? Because their understanding was, if you were wealthy, then God blessed you. And God blessed you because you were right with him. So if a guy that's right with God is going to have a hard time or basically be impossible to get into heaven, what chance do the rest of us have? Is what they're saying to Jesus. And Jesus' response is to simply tell them with man, it's impossible. And you may say, wow, that's encouraging. You can't do it. Wow. No, he says with man is, it is impossible, but he goes on to say, but with God, all things are possible. You see, it is our reliance on God. God steps in when we were utterly helpless, when we had no chance, when it was impossible. The next word. Christ. And that changes everything from that point forward. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. I love that Paul says it that way. Not just died for sinners in general, because that we can we can somehow play mental gymnastics and sinners, that's those other people. But he doesn't do that. He says for us sinners. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Verse seven. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So Paul is drawing on a very logical argument here. Uh, People would generally not be willing to die for each other. Oh, I know there are people out there. Oh, I would die for you, man. Um, yeah, that sounds good, but how often do you actually step up and do it? You know, you may emotionally feel like you would be willing to go through that on behalf of the other person. But when it comes to, I would actually die for you. Most people, when push comes to shove, are going to find reasons why they're busy that day. It's just the reality. And that's talking about for, for a good person. Most people aren't going to step up and go, hey, that guy on death row that killed 13 people. Yeah, I'll, I'll die in his place. It'd be like, no, he deserves it. He has, he he's a mass murderer. He's, he's been tried, convicted. The evidence is overwhelming. He admits it. You know, I'm not stepping in in his place. I'm not going to bear the penalty for his crimes. And yet what he's saying is, 
even though most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person, although you might find somebody out there that is just so phenomenal, somebody out there that is is so particularly good that when people see them, they're an encouragement, they're, they're, they're improving their world, and they're like, you know, my life, it's not all that significant. I don't impact that many people, but look at them. I could die in their place and they could keep doing that. You might get somebody that goes, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. But in verse eight, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ, which is God in the flesh to die for us. Okay. So God willing to die for us while we were still sinners, we were still the bad guys. We still deserved everything coming our way as far as the consequences of sin, as far far as separated from God, as far as eternity in hell, we still deserved it. We still owed that price. And into that situation steps Christ, willing to die for me and for you, for us sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. In other words, this is what Jesus was willing to do for us. This is how far God was willing to go to redeem us. So why do you think he's going to pull up short? If he's willing to do all of that, then he's going to save us from his condemnation, from the weight of the guilt of our sin. God has atoned for our sin. So he is both just, sin must be paid for, but he's merciful. He stepped in and paid the price that was on my head and yours. Now we get to verse 10 of chapter five, and Paul kind of sums up that section. He says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Understand, he's he's already made that comment. Now he's making it again, maybe a little more clearly. Our friendship with God, our relationship with God, that our sin broke, has been restored. And it wasn't restored because we worked our way back to it or or we were nice enough towards God that he accepted us back as friends. And it, No. We were created for a relationship with God. We sinned. We rebelled against God. We decided we would set ourselves up as God in our own lives, and we didn't need him. And we decided what we would worship and what we would serve. And neither one of those things was him. We became not friends, enemies of God, not indifferent towards God. We became enemies 
of God. But, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies. You see, we didn't deserve it. We didn't even desire it. We were still his enemies when God did everything to save us. He goes on to say, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. If his death made us friends with God, then through the life of his son, through the resurrected Christ, it only gets better. It only gets better. Verse 11. So now we can, excuse me, verse 11, let me try that again. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Our sins separated us from God. Our sin earned us a death penalty. It earned us eternity in hell. But God not holding that against us, in fact, knowing full well what the cost of that was, stepped in in Christ Jesus and died, which was the penalty for our sin, for us sinners. He died for us so that we could be made right so that sin was no longer an obstacle to our relationship with God. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ made us friends of God. What an awesome privilege to be called the friends of God. It's a great thing. Now in 12, Paul goes on to talk more about the grace of God and this restored relationship through Christ. And he does it by drawing some parallels and some contrast between Adam and Christ. Now, this is um, the, just perspective here, Paul's perspective, and frankly, my perspective. Adam was a historical figure. He existed, not just a myth to to denote moral failing or some sense like that. No, Adam, Eve, Garden of Eden, real place, real thing, really happened. First people down the line from there, we are all guilty of sin. That's it. Now, let's look at the passage. Verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now, is original sin passed down the line? Is the, is the consequence of Adam's sin felt by all of humanity down the line since then? Yes. Are we guilty of our own sin? Yes. See how that works? Yeah, sin entered the world through Adam. The consequence of sin, the curse, the, the cost of sin, death, entered creation. And it's still with us. But we are all also accountable before God. 
I am guilty of my sin. I am forgiven. My sin is atoned for. I have been redeemed. But I needed to be redeemed, not because of what Adam did, but because of what I did. I joined into that lineage that Adam started, as have all of humanity. Now, we can go back and forth on the nuance of theology there, and even Jewish theology kind of holds a couple of differing views there. But uh, suffice it to say, he's drawing this parallel, and it's, it's sin entered the world through Adam, so we got a problem because it spread to the whole world. Verse 13, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, the law on Mount Sinai. Well, what about all the people before that? Yeah, they sinned. Go back to chapter 1 and take a look at it. God reveals himself through his very creation, and humanity in our sinfulness chose to worship the creation, not the creator. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God, as Adam did, they all died. Even if they didn't explicitly disobey God like Adam, they still sinned and died. So we see that consequence of sin, that twisting of creation, of sin at work in the world. Now, what did the law do? Did the law clear it all up? No. In fact, he'll discuss that in a moment. Even those that did not disobey an explicit command of God, as Adam did, they died. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. You may go, wait, okay, you just said sin entered the world through Adam, and you're saying Adam represents Christ? How does that work? One individual and their actions affecting all the rest. That's how he's a symbol. Then he goes on at 15, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. And here again, understand when Paul says many, he is using a contrast of words and well, he's also doing it in Greek, but for our English version, he's using a contrast of words between the one and the many. Many in this regard means all the rest. Okay. Many doesn't always mean everybody. In this case, many does mean everybody. He's just not saying everybody. He's saying the one versus the many. So that's the contrast he's developing there uh, as far as the, the language goes and what he's doing. So again, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? So we've got what Adam did affected many, affected everybody, affected the world. But then the second half of verse 15, but even greater, even greater 
is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. So you've got this contrast here between Adam and Christ. Similarities and some profound differences. Verse 16, and the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, to us being condemned. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. So even though we are guilty and deserve condemnation, Adam's legacy is condemnation before God. But God's free gift through Christ is no condemnation, even though we deserve it, even though we are guilty of many sins. Verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the message of the gospel. Even greater. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Wow. God's grace, it makes all the difference. God stepped into creation in the person of Jesus the Christ. And he died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And then rose again, showing victory over death that death is no longer the outcome, but life is. When we stand in his grace, when we place our faith in him and his atoning work. Now in verse 18, Paul goes on to say, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. You see, the gift of God is open to everyone. Just as the the effects of sin from Adam bring condemnation on everyone. Christ's one act of righteousness, brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because, verse 19, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. And again, many, that's everybody, okay? But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Now, this isn't just one other person, okay? He's drawing again this contrast between Adam and Christ. 
And so this one other person was the Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh. So again, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me read that last passage again, because here Paul is summing up this particular argument. God's law, okay, law of Moses, Mount Sinai, Old Testament, Pentateuch, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Not so that we could look at it and go, oh, look at how much better I do it following the law than you do it following the law. Or look at how just I am based on the law because I am not just based on the law. The law shows everyone how sinful we are. The law describes for us the nature and character of God, of what his holiness looks like what the holiness of God could be described as. We can't help but read God's law and realize we don't measure up. And that was the point. From the beginning, that was the point to show us just how sinful we are. Why? Because if we don't understand our sinfulness, we don't understand our need for a Savior. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Why? Because we become more aware of how much of a difference God's grace makes, of what his grace is atoning for in our lives. If we think we just have one sin in our life, then the grace of God, which is awesome, only covers one sin, but when we realize just how sinful we are, when we realize the pervasiveness and the extent of sin in our heart, of our, as Paul describes it elsewhere, slavery to sin, we start understanding just how badly we need to be set free. and how much it costs. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. You see, His grace is always sufficient. There is always enough of the abundance of God's grace to cover the abundance of our sin. It's not going to run out. It's not, we're so bad we can't be saved. I've actually heard people say that. The stuff I've done, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know. There's no way God could forgive me. Yes, he can. 
Because as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So, verse 21, so just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death. Remember, he was talking earlier about at just the right time. Yeah. As sin ruled over all people and brought them to death. Now, God's wonderful grace rules instead. There has been with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, there has been a turning point in all of existence. And that turning point is turning from the point of sin ruling over the world, ruling over people and bringing them to death over to living in view of God's grace that gives us a right standing with God. And what's the result of that? Resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin brought death. Christ brought life. Sin brought separation from God. Christ brings right relationship. That when we were enemies, we were made into friends of God. Because God demonstrates his love in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. It was at just the right time. And it wasn't because we were interested in it or because we deserved it. As this translation says it in verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Yeah, us sinners. Christ died for us. Every one of us. We're all guilty of sin. We all have a Savior. Now, will we step forward in faith and place our trust in that Savior? Will we appropriate this gift of grace that God has given us, this, this undeserved position of privilege in His sight that He is offering? Will we, through faith, take hold of that? Because that's the only place salvation comes from. It is from Christ, and it is through faith. There is no set of religious structures or rules or traditions that will make us right before God. There is no amount of doing good, of good deeds or kindness that will make us right before God because our sin is too great. And we are, apart from Christ, in fact, enemies of God. There's only one way to be made right with God. There is only one way to be declared a friend of God. And that is through the sacrifice of Christ, through his grace, when we turn to him in faith. Do you need to turn to him? If you do, I encourage you, don't put it off. Do it right now. Turn to God. Talk to him. Place your faith in the atoning work of Christ. Place your faith in God. Ask him to forgive you for your sin. Accept that gift of grace and mercy that God gives you. 
and understand that from that point forward, God looks at you differently. He has declared you a friend. You stand in a place of undeserved privilege before God. And all of it is because he loves you. Do you need to turn to him today? Don't put it off. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study these words, Lord, help them to just speak to our hearts. Help them to, if we walk in faith with you already, help them to encourage our faith, to help us understand the the wonderful grace of Jesus, to live in that that joy and that moment of being made right with you, of, of friendship with you. But Father, for those that may be taking part in this study of your word that that don't know you that haven't latched on to your grace that that haven't turned to you in faith father i pray that you will make the truth known to their hearts today that you will use this time for your glory and to set them free of that penalty of death has been at work in the world for so long. Set them free of being enemies of you. And by your grace, make them friends of God. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the encouragement that it brings. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.